Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast, a podcast that connects college and university students with AEI scholars to discuss pressing issues facing our country and world. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation on the European energy crisis between AEI's Dalibor Rohach and Executive Council student Jake Lorenz. Before I turn it over to Jake, I want to let you know that AEI's Executive Council Program gives students the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like this one and to lift up the quality of public policy dialogue on campuses throughout the country. If you want to learn more or join us in this effort, check out the link in our show notes and be sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating to help others find the podcast. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Jake Lorenz, and I'm a sophomore at the University of Pittsburgh studying political science, French, and European Union studies. Today, I am grateful to be speaking with Dr. Dalibor Rohach, who is a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies European political and economic trends and U.S.-EU relations. He is the author of In Defense of Globalism, Towards an Imperfect Union, A Conservative Case for the EU, and most recently, Governing the EU in an Age of Division, which comes out in November 2022. Dr. Rohach has testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee and his commentary has been published in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He has a PhD in political economy from King's College London, an MPhil in economics from St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, an MA in economics from George Mason University, and a BA in economics from Charles University in Prague. Dalibor, thank you so much for joining me. Jake, it's a pleasure to be with you. We have a very uh, exciting conversation today surrounding the European energy crisis that's become apparent in recent political events, which leads me into my first question. How should EU leaders understand the value of the principles of democracy in light of the energy crisis and the increasingly unbearable cost of energy? What can the United States do as the world's most powerful democracy and a massive producer of energy to assist its European allies? I think it's worth stepping back first and and just looking at um, the policy decisions that led Europe to to its current place. For almost a generation, successive uh, waves of European, particularly German politicians, were pursuing deeper economic and energy ties with Russia for reasons that were superficially plausible, maybe 15, 20 years ago, namely this idea that Russia was just one of many transitional countries going through problems of its own, whether they had to do with corruption or weakness of institutions. And by forging deeper ties with the West, we would somehow help Russians turn the country around and, and join the ranks of other advanced industrialized democracies. Like that, that worked in a way in the case of Bulgaria, in the case of, of other other countries that in spite of all their problems ended up joining the EU and NATO and became parts of, of the West, broadly speaking. It just didn't work in the case of Russia. And I think it, it, it didn't work for reasons that uh, the more perceptive observers already understood 20 years ago. Um, and I think after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, everybody understands. Namely, it's dangerous to be 
dependent on one of your most important economic inputs on a regime which is malevolent and which is trying to destroy you. And that's exactly what's been happening. So so Russia has been hoping and the Kremlin has been hoping to use these energy ties as a source of leverage. And in a way, it succeeded after 2014, after its initial invasion of Ukraine, in returning some to some version of the status quo, uh, notwithstanding uh, these, these European sanctions that existed. Uh, after... This year's invasion, I don't think there is any going back. And as a result, Europe has been scrambling to wean itself off Russian energy in recent months. It's very difficult in the short term. I think it's perfectly doable in the long term. Um, And one of the side effects of this has been this incredible spike in energy prices in Europe. So, So compared to where the prices were a year ago, um, they went up maybe five times to something like 350 euros per megawatt hour uh, at the end of August. They have come down a little since, but still it's roughly eight times as much as natural gas costs in the United States. The United States has not seen anything like this, notwithstanding the um, the, the, the gas price inflation that, that we saw earlier, earlier this year. Again, it's, it's very difficult to do anything about the situation in the short term other than just help households in need. In the long term, it's important to expand energy supply, to look for sources elsewhere, to forge relationships that bypass Russia, that don't rely on Russia. And and, in that sense, uh, the United States can help and is already helping uh, countries, including Poland, including Italy, including Germany, are building LNG terminals, hoping for supplies of liquefied natural gas, including from the United States. Um, Countries are also keeping online the nuclear power plants that some of them were previously considering closing down, including Germany, Italy, and Sweden. Some countries, you know, Poland can always revert back to using coal. Everybody is doing, you know, the best they can. It's a difficult situation. There is a massive fiscal burden then that that this that this imposes on governments at the time when European Central Bank and other central banks are trying to bring inflation down. So so we are really Europe and United States too, frankly, are headed into into a few very difficult months economically, which moreover are going to be, you know, fairly cold months on the on the European side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, hearing some of those increased prices in European energy is sort of unfathomable from an American perspective. We saw some of the inflation and and are still seeing it um, from the past couple of years. And um, the domestic political pressures here are are certainly very high. So um, I'm curious what that looks like um, in the European context. The Council of the EU in early August approved a request to mandate a 15% reduction in gas demand. A 15% reduction in European natural gas demand, especially in this upcoming winter, um, is quite unbelievable to imagine. What are we to think of this um, in a European context, uh, especially with the you know political pressures that European countries are facing on a domestic front? Well, it's you know it's a supply and demand problem. So so you had the shift in supply, which is putting significant upward pressure on prices, and to prevent those prices from skyrocketing further and 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 really devastating 
poor households, you have to do something about the demand. So, so with countries trying to translate these 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 guidelines uh, from the EU level into policies in in different ways and in, in different countries, you know, you would have these occupation health and safety standards for example modified to reduce office temperature by by two degrees in 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 in, in some countries obviously uh shifting to alternative fuels is is, is 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 a possibility it has to be said that you know governments saw this coming for 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 quite some time and some european governments have done a better job preparing themselves than others for example, the German government, for you know all the quibbles we can have with, with 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 Germany, did uh, a relatively successful job filling its reserves for the coming winter, uh, because the the leadership understood that the possibility of just having no supply of, of natural gas from Russia is a is a real possibility. Um, and then the the other part of of the response has to do with with efforts to help households in in need. And for, for example, you look at you know in the, in the in the UK, we've seen this this turmoil on the financial markets and the the fall of the sterling relative to to, to the US dollar, but also the euro, which has to do partly to 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 the fact that, that the UK government is trying to cap um, natural gas prices at a certain level annually for for households and and the cost of that policy is close to 40 billion pounds which is what maybe 5% of the annual budget i mean you know it's a big number if you suddenly have to just spend 5% more if you're already in a in a difficult fiscal situation the uk's debt to gdp ratio is around 120% uh there isn't a lot a lot, lot, lot of moving space there. Uh, the same could be said about Italy, which, moreover, has not prepared itself quite as well as Germany for for the upcoming winter, uh, and has much less breathing space in terms of in terms of sort of fiscal space uh, with a debt to GDP ratio of over one hundred and fifty percent. So, uh, countries really will be probably in need of. You know, fairly sort of large-scale, sort of EU-level efforts at, at at the rescue of the sort we saw a decade ago during the during the eurozone crisis. I think I think this really going is going to be a a difficult difficult situation, and that, that has geopolitical implications as well. Because mm-hmm. uh, if we want Ukraine to win this war, it will be important for European countries to maintain a unified front, and you already have dissenting voices. Uh, on Monday, the 26th of September, we are recording this on the 28th, Viktor Orban uh, told the Hungarian parliament that he was going to work to um, essentially revoke the EU sanctions on, on Russia. And uh, earlier, Hungary negotiated its special deals with Russia over over natural gas supplies. So you already have you know these dissenting voices. Moreover, you had uh, you know these explosions uh, in Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, which essentially put these pipelines that go through Ukraine uh, as, as the only options for, for sort of Russian Russian natural gas supplies into Europe and uh, sort of squeezed in this way. You can see easily some European governments caving in and, and, and trying to maybe pressure Ukraine into, into a compromise of some sort. I don't think it's going to work. I, I, and I think there is a good chance that this unified European front will be maintained. But I think it's a real risk that we have to take seriously.
bouncing off what you just spoke about, taking into account um, current events and the state of geopolitics, we are recording uh, on September 28th, and we are seeing gas leaks from the Nord Stream pipelines, uh, which are the Russian-owned pipelines built to transfer natural gas um, from Russia to Germany. Um, what does this mean in the context of Russian aggression, the energy crisis, and more? Um, and what sort of precedent is this setting for the use of natural gas and energy um, in a geopolitical context uh, in relation to the war in Ukraine and um, European allies and uh, taking that all into account? That's a, that's a fascinating question. So, so first of all, it has to be said that what we know about these, these leaks is, is somewhat limited. I think there is some evidence that there were explosions on the seabed around the, the, the pipelines. And Swedish seismologists have concluded that the Danish government said that it suspected that Russia did this. Uh, Russians have submarines. They have the capability to do that out of Kaliningrad. Uh, it is quite unthinkable that a government like that of Denmark or Germany would, would ever do anything like that. Some people have sort of flippantly suggested that maybe, you know, the Biden administration is trying to tie the Europeans' hands. I think it's equally unimaginable that an administration as cautious as as, as, as the current one would, would do something like this in Danish territorial waters. So although we don't have the smoking gun, I think, you know, all, all the indications point to to Moscow, and I think the idea behind um, this incident is, is is really to put additional pressure on the Europeans. So, so with Nord Stream One and Nord Stream Two gone, um, it is these pipelines going through Ukraine that are the only sources of, of Russian natural gas for Europe. Uh, Russia is already threatening to um, to cut those supplies or to to turn them off completely by sanctioning Naftogaz, which is the Ukrainian natural gas company. And and that would obviously put uh, even more upward pressure on, on on prices in Europe, and would would would, would sort of corner corner Europe uh, even more. Again, I don't think it's going to achieve the desired end, partly because Ukrainians are going to fight no matter what, and and because Ukrainians more than anything else rely on U.S. military assistance rather than than European one. All the Europeans have stepped up in in, 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 in in major ways, but but they really in terms in absolute terms are nowhere near what, what the United States is doing. So, so so it's not clear that the Europeans, you know, Berlin, Paris have all that much leverage over over President Zelensky on this matter, even if they were indeed cornered. And I also think that this is, you know, from 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 Russia's perspective quite, you know, counterproductive, although you know, it is justifiably scaring the bejesus out of people to see explosions in, in the in the Baltic Sea. I think it also hardens attitudes against Russia as as a reckless, irresponsible actor, if not an orchestrator of a political terrorism. Um, so, in line with some of um, Russia's demonstrative aggression recently, um, Moscow has made it exceptionally clear demonstrated in the unjust and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine that it is just not willing to comply with the rest of the rules-based international order. Europe is now in this position due to dependence on Russian oil. Um, what can the continent do uh, from its current positioning 
whether in terms of energy production, geopolitics, et cetera? Um, and is there a role for the United States um, to play a heavier hand than it's playing now? And what is your ass- uh, assessment um, of the Biden team's efforts thus far? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's worth, again, distinguishing between the short term and the long term. I mean, you know, in the short term, there isn't much you can do. Like, you're not going to build an LNG terminal overnight. You're not going to build new nuclear power plants in, in you know, months, not even years. It takes It takes much longer. All of these adjustments that are going to happen, that are very likely to happen, could have happened a long time ago with more enlightened European leadership. Uh now they just have to happen on a on a much shorter time schedule and with a lot more pain. Uh, that obviously poses poses risks, but really it's important that uh, that Europeans just 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 stick with it and and, and do not cave to 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 to, to Russia. Uh, there are alternatives to to Russian natural gas, you know, from 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 nuclear. Through more investment into renewables, through coal, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that there are trade-offs in in in, in policy, right? So, so European leaders and and the UK uh, have probably been leading the the global conversation on on decarbonization and fighting climate change, um, and and you know that imperative might be in tension with the effort to wean yourself off. Uh, Russian natural gas because I mean, natural gas is a cleaner fuel than say coal, uh, and then then some of the then some of the alternatives. And so the question is, you know, something's got to give. You 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 are not going to pursue both of these objectives at the same time. Uh, and I would argue that in the short term, given you know where we are in Ukraine with with with, with the war, I think the imperative of defeating Russia. And demonstrating that that this form of aggression is is not tolerable, uh, and and that there'll be permanent consequences on on the Russian economy for 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 for, for this form of aggression has to take precedent. And obviously, we have to worry about climate change and the policies that need to be put in place. Uh, but I think being able to sort of talk talk honestly about these trade offs is really important, and and that's something that not all politicians have done a terribly good job at. So I would like to see, for example, in the United States, a much greater emphasis on expanding energy supply, and uh, and much greater push to get you know LNG out to Europe uh, than 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 we are currently seeing. I mean, the the administration has has done some some of these some of these things, but there is also the, the fear that uh, doing more might alienate uh, groups, constituencies within the Democratic Party that that obviously prioritize uh, climate change over over other concerns that that should inform energy policy. Mm-hmm. Um, especially considering, you know, the prioritization of climate policy obviously has its strategic and and you know domestic political importance, but um, you can't prioritize. Con- uh, climate policy if the statehood of, of your nation is threatened. So, um, yeah, that's a very interesting uh, remark. Skewing away um, from some of the apparent pessimism of this matter, um, what is the optimistic outlook on this crisis? Um, is it possible for Europe to come out more energy independent, secure, potentially greener? I know we just talked about that briefly, um, but are there any options for European leaders um, that they ought to take into consideration that you're not seeing in the general 
public policy conversation going on in Brussels? I think there are certainly risks ahead in the coming months. You know, we saw the election in Italy that brought uh, to, to government a group of political parties that have, shall we say, a relaxed, if not friendly, attitude towards towards Russia. Uh, there is, uh, you know, something you know brewing in in in, in any number of, of certainly poorer European countries. You look at places like Hungary and, and, and Slovakia and the Czech Republic, there are constituencies that are just not happy where things are going. But if Europe keeps its current course, uh, if Ukraine wins this war, uh, I don't think there'll be any going back to to the to the business as usual with Russia that we saw that we saw earlier. And indeed Europe, you know, with new LNG terminals, with new sources of energy, will come out of this crisis stronger. I mean in, in, in the end um, yes, there are tensions, you know, between between decarbonization and the imperative of weaning yourself of Russian energy. Uh, but but you know, over a very long term, those two things go in tandem. I mean, if 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 Europe is going to become carbon neutral, that might that that would mean just getting getting off Russian gas completely. And uh, the only difference is that now we have to get off Russian gas very quickly. And and I think that's that that's more likely than not to happen. And ultimately, that's going to strengthen Europe. That's going to strengthen the transatlantic relations. And I think it's going to be uh, a good starting point about a deeper conversation about how liberal democracies can defend themselves against authoritarian influences. If you think that decoupling from Russian natural gas is difficult, just think about the conundrum that trying to protect yourself from Chinese economic influence represents with, you know, in the United States, 20% of our imports coming from China, 40% of all maritime imports coming from 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 China and it's a far more sort of intricate network of of economic relations than than simply buying uh, raw materials from 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 Russia so so I think it's very much an overdue conversation uh I I I I sort of sense that it's it's not going to be it's not going to be easy but uh I think we have we have a duty to to to, to be optimistic because the alternatives are, are pretty pretty scary to imagine. Um, and not just a political duty, but a moral duty. Um, and, and that's something that um, is definitely um, being taken into account. Um, and now for our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? That's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a great question. I'm not sure if I'm in a position to sort of give people advice but uh there'll be uh, i think a few things that 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 sort of i i came to realize only in later years of my of my graduate studies i think that the one of them is it's just the strength of weak ties that this very often shapes your sort of professional relations and opportunities in Sometimes more significant ways than than the sort of deep and meaningful friendships that people form in 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 in, in university and and really you no know, no matter how uh, tiring and and unnatural networking feels uh, having this sort of wide network of of professional peers and 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 mentors 
uh, and people who are willing to help you is, is 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 just essential. And and I think it's always worth reaching out and asking people for help. Uh, the worst that can happen is is that they'll ignore you, right? And and the best that can happen is that they'll open doors to to new opportunities for you. Relatedly, uh, and I'm going to use economic jargon here. Um, I think it's always helpful to be somebody who is producing public goods, so to speak. So 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 goods that economic theory would predict are underproduced because they are, you know, non-rivalrous in consumption, and you can't exclude other people from enjoying them. You know, like when you are writing a blog, where mm-hmm. you provide useful information to people that you know anybody can read. Uh, the thing is that people want to be around other people who are like that. You want to be around people who are producing public goods and, and 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 so that sort of strengthens you know your ability to form these weak ties that will help you in turn in the future i think it's important but you know you can't think about it in, in transactional terms because you're going to spoil the whole thing because i think you know have to produce public goods and you know be nice to people and i think that's going to get you very far that's you know the view from 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 where I sit right now, looking back at at my years in in university and and beyond. Great. Um, well, Dalbor, it has been uh, an absolute pleasure speaking to you um, and Thank learning you, more about this pressing policy matter. Thank you so so much for your time. Anytime. Thanks, Jake. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.